0: We do have a lot to cover. In fact, uh, as I was preparing this week and last week for this morning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, and you can turn there in your Bibles, I just thought to myself, this is crazy. I was supposed to preach the rest of Daniel 2, and I was looking through my own notes and through the commentary notes, and I just thought, this this isn't going to work. And I thought, okay, how much faster can I talk? I already talked pretty fast. How many things can I shorten? How many things can I throw out that it won't, like, pain my heart too badly to get rid of? And, And basically, after I had just tried to cut as much out, I thought, okay, I think I can get to verse 35. And I thought, wait, that's not the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter is 49. So, well, I just capitulated and said, hey, Joe, would it be possible if I could, like, break the schedule and prolong this a little bit, so you'll have to bear with me for at least this week and next week. I apologize, but there is just so much here, and I think particularly in a a section where we often might read it very quickly and skip over it and just try to get toward a conclusion. We miss something that God has done, something that, as I will say at the end, And so this is a spoiler alert, but maybe a little bit of a teaser that not only shows his brilliance, but shows his goodness. And that is what struck me so much so in these verses. But there is an explanation to get to that end conclusion of just the immense generosity and the immense mercy and the immense kindness of God in revealing what he did in verses 31 through 35. Well, (coughs) excuse me, to that end, and so that the Lord would be honored and that our minds would be prepared, shall we begin our time with the word of prayer. Our God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for this text, which is so rich and so powerful and demonstrates your deliberateness and your brilliance and how you design and how you have ordained things in, in the scriptures and in the events related by the scriptures. And through it all, O oh God, may we see that, even in the worst of times, your promises are true. Even in the worst of times, your your plan prevails. And that these things should be on the forefront of our minds in our own circumstances, which are difficult and can disorient us and can discourage us. That we do not forget that the truths that are revealed in Scripture, they are still in operation. They have not been derailed. They have not been set aside in our trials. They are in full force and full effect in those moments. And may that cause our eyes to see the wonderful things you are doing and cause our hearts to be comforted and cause our souls to turn always back to you. So be honored now as we delve into your word. Help us to be in wonder at your brilliance, to be in awe of your promises, to rejoice in your goodness and in your care for your people. And most of all, to glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, the stone not made with hands, who becomes the great mountain that fills the earth in the end. May that and may he capture our hearts now. In your name we pray. Amen. Like I said, Daniel chapter 2 verse 31 and following is just so rich. It's so dense. And there is much, much to be gained from it. But for this day and for the next week of what we are going to be covering, I think you can almost boil down the application and the lessons to two takeaways, to two major applications, two major truths. And the two major truths would be this, that the promises of God prevail and that we must perceive the plan of God. Those are the two two applications, that we need to remember that God's promises, no matter what, no matter what it feels like, no matter what our senses may tell us, no matter what we see around us, the promises of God prevail, and second of all, that we must constantly perceive God's plan. And let me just elaborate on these two ideas very, very quickly, and starting with the notion of perceiving the plan of God. So often when we watch the news, or when we look at life, or when we understand our surroundings, we immediately just forget what God's plan is. That God actually and Daniel 2 and throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, but it's all really grounded in a lot of ways on the passage that we are covering, has laid out systematically this is the exact plan. This is the exact order of things. This is the way history is going to march, and this is the way it's going to happen step by step by step to the end. And often, though, when we look at the news or what we look at our lives, we just think everything is pretty random, and we don't correlate what is taking place with what the Scripture has framed. Now, to be clear, I am not talking about what some have termed newspaper theology, and perhaps we need to relabel that because a lot of people are saying, well, it's a newspaper. But what we're talking about when we talk about these things is when you look at the news, you say, that's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Oh, and that's that, and that's that, and that's that. No, that's not what we're talking about. We are not talking about watching the news and identifying that, oh yes, what is said in Daniel 2, or oh yes, what is said in the book of Revelation, or oh yes, what is said in some prophetic utterance, is being fulfilled in the news story that we see at the moment. No, that is not what I'm talking about. Let me say that again. That is not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is this, that when we watch the news and when we see events, we see, oh, I could see how this is going that direction. I see that this is going this way. And I can see how all that the Scripture has set up to happen, including, and this is important, including the final victory of Christ, it's all moving in that direction. I see that. I see that. And when you see that, then your heart isn't disturbed by the news. It's directed to Christ. When you see that in your own life, your heart is not discouraged by what is happening. You know everything is going to plan. It reminds me sometimes when, whether it's from home renovations to medical treatments, people present to you a plan. And why do they do that? So that you anticipate what is going to happen. And sometimes from home renovation To medical treatments, it can be painful. It can be difficult. There can be bumps in the road. You can experience discomfort of one issue to the other. But you know it's all according to plan. You knew that. You knew what was going to happen. You expected that these difficulties would come. Often in life, whether you watch the news or your own circumstances, we think things are just out of control this just can't be happening. Well, what's going on? What we need to remember is the Bible already laid out a plan. And so you can't learn the lessons that we're about to learn and have the truth enter our ears and our minds and our hearts and then jettison it when all these things are happening. When we see that times are getting from bad to worse, when we see that the global economy and all these different things are coming together in a certain way, it shouldn't disturb us. Why? Because it's all according to plan. We should rejoice and say, great. I know that this is gonna happen. Yeah, it's not so fun, but it's all according to plan. It's not random. It's not out of control. It's exactly what I thought it would be. That's what we need to understand, and Daniel 2 lays out a plan, and we need to abide by that plan. It's not just, hey, win at Bible trivia or accomplish some kind of eschatological scheme. It is, is this really how you view the world, The per, perceiving the plan of God? Likewise, though, there's a second application, and it is more immediate to this passage. And like I said, that is that God's promises, God's plan prevails. God's plan prevails. Sometimes when we deal with our trials, sometimes when we deal with our circumstances, we are like Peter on uh, the Sea of Galilee. We take a look around at what is going on, and that's all we can see. And we forget about who God is and we forget about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we forget about all that he has promised. And sometimes in our trials, yes, praise God, we're we're saying to people, I'm trying to trust the Lord, and I'm really praying to him, and that's wonderful, and that's important, but there's a missing ingredient in all of that, and that we forget actually what God has promised in those moments. We forget what is actually true, in those moments. We forget all the truths that are in operation in that moment. And so all we pray in the trial is, God, get me out. Let me, let's end this. Let's get rid of it. Let's finish it. Let's get it over with. You know, the irony is God never promised that. And so we're trying to make up promises that God has made. And when we forget the promises and the truths about God that he actually has revealed. We sometimes joke with children that when they listen to us, the, the ideas and the message go in one ear and out the other. We know that. But the same thing can happen to us. We have a Bible full of promises. And in the trial, what ends up happening is that it goes in our ear and out the other. And instead of praying, Lord, I know You're so good, and I know that you turn evil to good, and I know you work out all things for good, and, Lord, I know you're sovereign in this way, and you're merciful in this way, and I know, and I know, and I know, and I know, and therefore help me to see all of these promises because they're not just going to be true later. They're true right now. The sun shines whether or not you can see it or not. The clouds may block the sunshine, but the sun is still shining and that is the nature of the promises of God. God's promises shine whether you can see them or not. Therefore, all you have to do is pray that you see what has always been true. That's what our job is to do. And sometimes the reason we struggle so much and the reason we are in agony in our prayer life and trials is because, yes, we remember our trials and we remember God, but we, remember, we forget the bridge that links between, which is all that God has said all the promises that are still true in that moment. They are not suspended because you're going through difficulty. No, the sun is still shining. Whether or not you can see it or not because the clouds are blocking it, it is still in operation. And so we must remember perceiving the plan of God, but we must also remember that God's promises prevail and these twofold ideas, this twofold lesson, is part of Daniel chapter 2. And it is what Daniel lays out to us when he gives the. Dream and its interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. And there is a lot of setup for this, and it's worthwhile to understand. As we know, in Daniel chapters, the whole book truly, it is a lesson, it is a declaration that Yahweh is supreme, that Yahweh is superior, that as the name Daniel indicates, God judges. He has the final say over all the nations. And so Israel should not be, and God's people should not be distressed by when the nation. Seem to have victory or when they have triumph because they may have a say, but our God has the final say on the matter. And that's what we see building up chapter by chapter by chapter. And so in Daniel 1, how do we know that God is still reigning and that God is still sovereign and God is still superior? Well, we can see it in God's agent, Daniel, in his uncompromising life. On one hand, it is a reminder for us of how important an uncompromising life is and how powerful that can be. It can be a testimony to the world that our God still reigns, that our God is still powerful. Why? Because his saints are unbending and unbreakable. And that is what demonstrates his power, and he uses that. And in fact, there's even practical, deep practical lessons in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Turn there with me uh, just very quickly set this in our own heart. Set what in our own heart? Daniel eight. How did Daniel be, and how did he rely on God in such an uncompromising way? Notice the instructions, and this is so powerful. Daniel set in his heart. No compromise isn't because you have external accountability, although that may be very important. No compromise is not merely because you can set up a lot of systems around you to help you. No compromise is not because you get additional rules or legalism. No compromise happens because you set something where? In your heart. That's the only way you can win the battle of having integrity. It is not by external rules. You can have 10,000 rules. You can have more rules than the Pharisees, which would be an accomplishment. It won't matter one bit if it's not in your heart. And notice what did he set in his heart? That he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Daniel knew exactly where the line was. It's so important. He knew exactly where the line was and why it's wrong. You know, the Chaldeans, they wanted Daniel to do lots of things. They had a whole educational system, brainwashing, as Chris had talked about before. And on top of that, they had food and drink. Daniel singles out the one thing or the one set of things that he knew where he would cross the line. And he says, I will not cross. What is an uncompromising life? It's a life that from the inside out, In your conscience and in your heart, you make a determination. I can go this far and no more. And I will not go any more than that. And it's uncompromising, not only in his own determination, but in the way that he conducts himself. That's why, notice the rest of verse 8 so he sought permission from the commander of the officials. It's not just that Daniel had a determination in his heart, but then he compromised in the way that he related to authority. No. He did not compromise in his heart. He did not compromise in drawing the lines. And he did not compromise in the follow-through of all of that when he sought permission from the commander of the officials. And here's, here's the amazing thing. When he expressed his concern to the officials, notice what it is, that he might not defile himself. He puts it in theological terms. Do you really think that the Babylonians even have a conception of what it means to defile yourself? You know, you don't like it. No, it's not because I don't like the food. Is it not good? No. Do you have an allergic reaction? No. What's the issue? Is it going to make you fat? No. What's the issue? It'll defile me. That is not on our list of exemption requirements. (laughs) But Daniel puts it forward theologically. Why? So it's a witness to the world. That's what Daniel did. He did not shield or try to cover up in some kind of legalese or some kind of sophistication that would appease the world, his issue. His issue is theological. His issue is about love for God. His issue is about being close to God and suitable to God and pleasing to God, and that's what he did. Verse 8 is gold in how to have an uncompromising life. It starts from the heart. It sets clear lines. It does not compromise even in how you approach others. And it's always clear in its presentation of God, and God used that for his glory because now when Daniel has success, everyone knows, it's not because he had great physicality or a great health plan or you know avoided allergic reactions or whatever it may have been. They know it's because he was pleasing his God, and his God granted him success. It is a testimony to the supremacy of God. And in Daniel 1, we see that God is supreme because of an uncompromising life. And in Daniel 2, we see that God is supreme because God alone has knowledge and wisdom. He alone has knowledge and wisdom. Last time that we were in the book of Daniel, Joe had mentioned that nebuchadnezzar most likely forgot his dream and he needed somebody to tell him that and how do we know that notice what nebuchadnezzar says over and over and over and over again he says make known to me the dream and the interpretation i am troubled to know the dream chapter 2 verse 3 Make known to me the interpretation, verse 5. Make known to me. He says that over and over and over. Make known to me. Later on in the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel will use the word understanding. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding it. Knowing it means knowing what it is, that it is. Understanding means to grasp and comprehend its depth and ramification. Knowing something is knowing what has happened, knowing the fact of it, knowing that it is. Understanding is perusing and meditating and grasping its depth and its significance. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just asking, give me understanding because I already know the dream. What was he saying? I don't even have understanding and I don't even know what I dreamed. Now, you say, why does that matter? Why is that so important? Why did Daniel emphasize this with the word no? Have you ever had this in your life? Two situations. One, you dreamed a dream, and then you forgot it. And it kind of bugs you for approximately maximum of a couple hours, and then it's okay. Fine. That's one situation. Here's an even worse situation. Have you ever had a situation where you said, you know what I'm talking about? You, you, you know what I'm about to say? That guy, you know, the guy that I'm talking about. And, and, you're, and, you're, and the person's like, I don't know who you're talking about. And you're like, I, you know, I think, his, I think his first name started with a letter. <laughs> ah, what is this guy's name? What is this thing? And it won't leave you. You're completely agitated all day. You're pounding Google. You're trying to say, give me the name. I want that name. What was I talking about? I'm just kidding. So the, um, <laughs> we know how that can bother us. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And like so many dreams that he could have had, he could have taken it and left it. No big deal. It doesn't matter. It was just a dream. That's all that happens. But what did God do? God gave him a dream, impressed on him that this was the most important thing he had ever seen in his entire existence that would determine his entire destiny and the destiny of the world. And then what happened when he woke up? God, either in part or almost the entire whole, removed the dream to force him to be completely desperate. And now a dream that could have easily been forgotten becomes the dream that occupies national attention. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar is so desperate, is so passionate to figure this dream out that he interprets anyone who gets in his way or anyone who can't give him the answer immediately as a conspirator who will be executed. When you are about to kill your entire cabinet, That makes frontline news. This dream has become broadcasted throughout all of Babylonia, throughout all the known world. Everyone's attention is on this dream. Why? Because you have a crazed king who has made it so, and who made the crazed king so crazy? God. That is the sovereignty of God right there. That God says, you think, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are so powerful because you can seemingly defeat me by taking over a city and exiling my people. And it didn't even really work because look, Daniel didn't bow. I can give you one thought that will drive you crazy. Who's really in charge? Who really has the power? Our God does. That's his brilliance. That's his brilliance. And God demonstrates that he has that kind of wisdom, not only in controlling Nebuchadnezzar's thought life to that extent, but giving Daniel wisdom. The king's wise counselors couldn't figure out how to placate the king. Daniel does. The difference demonstrates everything. Even before Daniel says one word, God has used Daniel's life And the wisdom that God gave Daniel to demonstrate that the message is valid because the messenger is valid. Let me say that again. That God has used Daniel's life in all of his wisdom in the way that he was able to handle himself by the time that was necessary. Seek God out gained the dream and its interpretation, all of that and how it was done was so wise that before even one word came out of Daniel's mouth about the dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar already knew he could trust this guy. Why? Because the messenger has already vindicated the message. And at this point now, everything has set up. You have a dream that garners national attention. You have a dream that is so important in its content and in its communication. And you have now the trusted one, the wise one, the one that God must have gifted with wisdom because it's seen so much in the opening part of chapter 2 that all of that has come together, and now this wise one is about to give this most important dream, this dream that God has used to manipulate and control Nebuchadnezzar, and all of that comes together, and we're about to learn it now. And there are three things, three things that we want to learn in this dream in chapter 2, verse 31 through 35. Three truths, three truths. Verse 31. The vastness of man. The vastness of man. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great single image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising in in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And its appearance was awesome. Now, immediately here, as you're reading this, you're just thinking, well, how are you going to teach on this dream? If you're just sticking with verses 31 through 35, and you're going to later comment on the interpretation of the dream, you know, when Daniel says in verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will say it's interpretation. If you're just concentrating on the dream, how is there anything in the dream itself other than its interpretation? I'm totally with you on this. And it's a thing that can bug expositors across the world and throughout all church history is sometimes the Bible, when it gives a parable, it gives the parable or a dream or a story with its interpretation side by side. And sometimes, sometimes the Bible doesn't even have to give it its interpretation. You just know what the parable means because it's so obvious and so clear by context. We understand that. But there are other times when... You have the story listed out in all of its detail. And then later on, you have the interpretation. And we just want to keep combining the two together. But God made them separate for a reason. And the question is, why? American efficiency would dictate always put them together. Because why would you tell the dream and then tell it again with its interpretation? That's unnecessary redundancy. You've just wasted ink. Think about how much space you could have saved in the book of Daniel if you had done it otherwise. So why separate them out? And you say, well, it's to prove that Daniel, that Daniel knew what he was talking about, that the king's request to know the dream and its interpretation is validated, absolutely. But you do realize that you could have condensed this into one sentence and said, Daniel gave the dream, proving that he knew what he was talking about. Next sentence, and that was the dream. And here it's interpretation with the dream. No problems. And so why does Daniel... Not only in the event, give the dream and then its interpretation, but when it's recorded, says the same thing. And the answer to this is to understand something that I barely ever understand, and that is the beauty of art. You say, What? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you have art appreciation class and they put a picture on the screen and you say, What is that? And the teacher says, It's a bird. You say, Oh. Well, I got, I'm glad I got that answer. Okay, next slide. Let's keep going. And the, and the teacher says, no, 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 no. Don't you want to appreciate why they drew the bird that way? And in my heart, sinfully, I'm thinking, no. <laughs> I'm just glad I know what it is. Let's move on. And then all of a sudden, though, as they describe why the bird is drawn this way and the brush strokes and the symmetry or the lack of symmetry and how that relates to the current thinking of that time and all these kinds of things and you think okay it's a philosophical statement sure great good we start to realize you don't just want to know what something means you want to know why it was conveyed that way and how much more is it true Not just for a piece of art, but for a divinely given revelation. We don't just want to know what happens. Yes, we will see next week, Lord willing. This is about four or five nations, depending on how you like to count it. This is about a progression of history. This is about the glory of Christ winning. Amen and amen. But before that ever takes place, there's a message in the imagery itself. And if you know your Bible, then you'll be able to see it. And this is what God has done. In a time of exile, when his people were far away, he gave them a message that said this, I have not forgotten my word. I have not forgotten what I have promised you. My word is still true. And so with that, in verse 31 we see a truth, a reality, an assertion presented before us about the vastness of man. You, O king, the text says, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. What Nebuchadnezzar saw in the dream that he had forgotten was that there was a statue, a big, big singular statue, except That the correct translation of the word statue is actually the word image, not statue. Yes, he saw a statue. That's what he saw. But how Daniel described it was not using the more common word, which we would associate with statue. Instead, he used the word image. And the question that we have to ask is, why? There's plenty of words that talk about a statue. There's plenty of words that talk about an idol. You could have used any one of those, Daniel. Why did you use the word image? And if we think about, okay, well, where else is image used in the Bible when we start from the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, it doesn't take us very much work to realize the word image is used in Genesis one. Man is made in God's image. Same word, same word. When Nebuchadnezzar saw, And what the message of the imagery is, is he didn't just see a statue. Amen, he did. He didn't just see a big statue. Amen, he did. But he saw a statue that inherently meant something. And it would mean something, maybe not to him, maybe he didn't realize it, but it would mean something to those who know their Bible. It would mean this. He saw the sum of the glory of man. He saw the sum of all that is in man, all that is in the image of God all that is comprised in man's might and power that God gave to his image bearer. All the creativity and ingenuity and power and authority that is embodied in man. And notice, this is climactic and culminative. Why? Because he didn't just view multiple statues, multiple image. What does it say? Behold, there was a single image. This is take all the power that people have take all the might of every single nation, take all the sovereignty of every single king that has ever existed and put it into one. That's what we're talking about. All the power, all the creativity, all that is in man in one thing, in a single image. And because it's the compilation of everything that man is, it's not just single, but what's the next word? It's great. It's great, powerful majestic because man can be very imposing and that's what we learn look at what the text says this image before nebuchadnezzar it was large why because if you're combining all the power that man has man has a lot of power given by god he has the right to have dominion over the earth he is large It is magnificent, and it's not just big and powerful, large. It's of notice the next phrase, extraordinary splendor. The idea of splendor is brilliant light, magnificent light. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? What ends up happening? You kind of have to shield your eyes. The picture is this, that man is so brilliant. Man is so powerful that everything in creation has to bow before man. Have you noticed when you go outside, you're not attacked by every animal and every bug? Only a few, the the bold (laughs) mosquito. But most animals and insects, they just run away from you. They have the fear of man, given by God. Man has not just splendor in that way, extraordinary splendor. Man goes to the rock and conquers it. Man goes to the ground and conquers it. Man goes to the air and conquers it. Man goes to the animal kingdom and conquers it. You know, you talk about, look at this animal, so powerful. Look at that animal, so powerful. And then they're like, look at it, man, he has a gun, powerful. <laughs> and so it looks like it, man is so full of Potential. And so full of overwhelming power. And notice the next phrase. Look at the activity of the statue. The statue isn't even stationary. It's like a rocket ship. It was rising up in front of you. And there's two reasons for this. On the one hand, it's rising up because what we will see and what we will learn is that each part of the statue is a successive kingdom. And so as the statue is going up and up and up, it demonstrates the progression of history. One kingdom to another kingdom, to another kingdom, to another kingdom. That's good. But the fact that it's rising above Nebuchadnezzar, what is that showing? This statue, Nebuchadnezzar, is bigger than you. It's greater than you. It's getting better and better and better. It's exceeding you. And so what you have here is a big statue, which is called an image because we have a portrayal of what is in man. Man has tons of potential and authority. Man has overwhelming power, and man progressively is getting better and better. Have you ever heard people say, man, things are just getting better and better and better. We're just improving and improving and improving. We got iPhone 13, and now we got iPhone 14. Obviously better, spend more money. That's what we say to people. We understand that. We just think things are getting better and better, and that's what the statue exudes, that kind of attitude. And you know why the king was so enraptured by the statue? You want to know why he was so captured by it? Because that's everything he wanted. All he wanted was to be the statue. He wanted all the power of man. That's why the dream is his. And in fact, later on, we will learn. Daniel makes it clear. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You are part of that statue because you wanted it. And here, is a warning because Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who can be so enraptured with man. We can be too. We can think I just want to be self-sufficient. I just want to be on my own. I just want to be successful. And we can we can fixate and focus on trying to promote ourselves or be promoted or climb the corporate ladder or try to find success in a place in this world. The statue that consumed Nebuchadnezzar in his dreams can be the same statue that consumes us. You could think of it simply this way. We know, as we will later read, that there will be a stone not cut with hands that smashes the statue. We know that. That's Christ. And so you have a choice. You can have his kingdom, or you can have man's what? Kingdom. And what does Matthew remind us? What does our Lord remind us in Matthew? Seek first what? The kingdom kingdom of God. God. That's what we need. That's what we need to remember. The things of this world, the things of this world, they can attract us. They look very impressive. They seem to rise higher and higher above us. They can can be imposing in that way. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. But nevertheless, it's impressive. And it's not just impressive, it can be intimidating. Notice the last phrase of verse 31. And its appearance was awesome. Of course, on the one hand, it's awesome. And so that's why Nebuchadnezzar was so enraptured by it. On the other hand, the word awesome can be translated this way, fearsome. Fearsome. Because the word awesome has at its root fear and terror. Sometimes when we understand world power, when we understand the authority and sovereignty that governments and leaders and conglomerates have, it can make you fearful. Because you know what they can do to you. You know what they can do to your friends. You know what they can do to a church. You know what they can do to churches worldwide. You know what they can do to your children or your children's children. And that can be terrifying. Man has power. It is given by God. And therefore, it is substantive. And that can appeal to some and be impressive to some, and that can be intimidating to others. And the scripture's exhortation is, but don't fall for it all the way. Don't fall for it all the way. Why? Because in context... This is just the opening part of it, and there's a reason why the Bible acknowledges man's might in this mighty statue, which emblazons and enshrines the nature of man's image of all that is in man. Why? Because in the end, we know that there will be a stone that strikes the statue and pulverizes it to the ground. As much as man is powerful, and we know how powerful people can be, and we know the sovereignty that they can possess, know this, Christ's glory is greater. That's what we have to understand, that as much, and we acknowledge and recognize as man has so much power and so much ingenuity, Christ is still infinitely more, and that should magnify Christ even more. That's what we need to remember in this. Yes, man is vast, but Christ is better, but Christ is better. Now, speaking of which, we don't just see in this vision the vastness of man, We see the vulnerability then of man, the vulnerability of man. Notice verses 32 and 33. It says this in the text, the head of that image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thigh of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As Nebuchadnezzar is impressed by this statue, Daniel proceeds to say what the statue is. And when you look at it, it's both confusing and can even be disappointing. You know, when we, because at least I'm not an engineer trained, nor jewelry trained, nor any anything really trained kind of individual, when we read this, we just kind of gloss over and say, okay, well, let's just get to the interpretation. But anyone reading this with any kind of background, especially an ancient Near Eastern background, they would have started scratching their heads at verses 32 and 33. And let me give you four observations why. Here's the first one. The statue isn't as valuable as you think it is. The statue isn't as valuable as you think it is. The head of the image was made of fine gold. That's great. And then the rest is not. This is like the classic lesson that I had to learn growing up, or really, you know, toward marriage, which is, Things can be made out of gold, but then there's this thing called gold-plated. And then there's this thing on top of that called just gold-colored. So you give somebody, maybe a significant other, a piece of jewelry, and they're like, this is gold! At least I, it looks like it. And they're like, if it's gold, why is my finger turning green? And the answer that I might give would be, because uh, that's what gold does? Wrong answer. Wrong answer. Sometimes you think something is worthwhile because it's made out of gold, only to realize it's not as much gold as you thought. It might have been gold-plated or not gold at all. Well, look here. Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the head of the statue as it's rising up like a rocket ship, and he says, "Gold, valuable, huh? Oh, not gold. Silver. Oh, not not good. Bronze. Uh, not that valuable. Iron. Oh, okay, I think iron could be valuable. How about iron and clay?" There's a reason why you don't often give jewelry made out of clay, made out of Play-Doh. It just isn't profitable. Cute from kids, not cute from a husband. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, Nebuchadnezzar would have seen the statue. It's supposed to be all that man is, all the glory, all the might of man. It's not as valuable as you think it is. It's not as beautiful as you think it is. Ecclesiastes says... Vanity, all is what? Vanity. It's not as as worthwhile as you think it is. Don't get so enraptured by it. It's not all that it's chalked up to be. Simply put, not all that glitters is gold. And that's what we must remember. That's what we must remember. Well, it's not only not as valuable, it's not as powerful as you might think it is. This statue is not as powerful as you might think it is. Notice, it starts with the head, singular, of that image. One thing. And then all of a sudden, we start talking about its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs, legs, plural. Every word after the word head that describes a body part is in the plural. Why? Because it's emphasizing this statue is fracturing apart. This statue is all these bits and pieces. And you think, okay, man has such power. Man has such might. Here's one thing he can't do. He can't unify. He can only contain. You say, what do you mean by that? When... When Babylon conquered the world, he really tried, that is Nebuchadnezzar, to unify everybody, to make everyone the same. Other conquerors, what do they do? They just contain people. They just try to get their arms around different entities so that they're all within the same geographical boundary lines. But that's not true unity. That's just putting peoples together. They didn't have the power to truly galvanize and solidify everyone as one. And the statue with all of its cracks and all of its particular pieces that are breaking out after the head, it just evidences everything is fracturing apart. It's not as cohesive as you might think it would be. And that becomes very obvious once you get to the feet because the feet are not only fracturing apart with body parts, but they're fracturing apart in materials. It's not just iron, but iron and clay. Everything is mixed up. Everything is fracturing apart. You have a big company. Have you ever noticed with big companies, there's big bureaucracy? Lots of red tape, lots of complexity, lots of confusion. You just say, this should be so easy. Just do it this way. It's never that easy. Why? Because you have more than one person involved and they, you have to work all of these things around people. It's the confusion of everything. You cannot, man does, my man have, may have much power, but he cannot put everything together. This statue is not as valuable as you think it is. This statue isn't as powerful as you think it is. And in fact, it's not just that the statue, as it goes down and down, it gets more diverse and less unified and worse and worse. It it gets worse and worse. Notice You start with gold, that's fine, very valuable. Then it's silver, then it's bronze, then it's iron, and iron and clay. And yes, you might argue that bronze and iron, they get stronger and stronger, but relative to value, it gets worse and worse and worse. Man consistently says, man just gets better and better and what? Better. What's the truth? Man gets worse and worse and worse. Man may get more violent, so has more control, But more violent is not better. More violent is worse. Man might be able to assert their brutality more to get results, but asserting brutality isn't good. That's called sin. Man can get better at sin, but getting better at sin is getting worse. Just because we think it's better doesn't always make it better. You know, people said, oh, but we are better. Look at this. We have a smartphone. It can unite people who never see each other. You can communicate. Do you notice how often phones get away of face-to-face communication? So the phone that's supposed to unite us actually what? Divides us. Same thing with social media. People say, look at this, social media. People can see how you're doing. Do you realize that people on social media, they spend less time with real people? So the thing that you thought was going to make it better actually made it worse. That's us. Man and our depravity, we just make things worse. Not all that glitters is gold. We don't always make things better. Things are getting worse and worse. That's biblical. 2 Timothy 3 says times will get from bad to worse. And so you have this head. It's not as valuable as you think it is. It's not as powerful as you think it is. Everything is getting worse. And then if you're paying attention to this and you have any kind of engineering background, you will realize the fourth point, which is the story of my life. You know, when I was building things as a kid out of legos a robot you focus on the head and you make a really elaborate robot head and then you just stick you know a couple legos on the bottom for the legs and what happens the whole thing tips over And then the head smashes into pieces and you wasted all that time. Why? Because you made the thing top heavy. And then you grow up and you do other projects for school and it's the same thing. And then you have the Masters University and it's WOW Saturday, the Week of Welcome Saturday, and you're helping people put up these posters and these signs and you don't even realize you need to put sandbags on the bottom of them because the poster is like a sail and then Santa Clarita is like a wind tunnel. And so all the wind comes through and what happens all the signs start flipping over all over the place and It's just your whole life. My whole life is spent picking up things that have fallen over because they're top heavy. What is this statue? Fine gold on what? Top. On bottom? Clay. What do you think is going to happen to the statue? It's everything in my life. It's going to topple over. That's what's happening. Anyone with a background in all these kinds of things would be able to see it. This statue makes no sense. It's ready to topple over. And that is exactly the nature of all of man's power. It is designed to fail. It is designed to fall. It is designed to collapse because it will bow before the one who is the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you have here is, yes, man is vast. He has power, but you've got to be able to see through that the way God set up the imagery of the dream is meant to send a message. Yes, man is in God's image. Yes, that's noble. Yes, that's powerful. But it's not all that you think it is. It's not as valuable as you think it is. It's not as powerful as you think it is. It's just getting worse and worse and worse, and it's ready to fall down. Are you really going to cling to that? you really going to cling to that? are you going to cling to Christ? Speaking of which, verse 34 and 35 final point, the victory of Christ, the vastness of man, the vulnerability of man, the victory of Christ. Verses 34 and 35, I love this. Nebuchadnezzar is looking. He continues looking in the dream, and there's a new stage of the dream, something far better than he's ever seen before. And what does he find? He finds a stone. Now, for him, a stone is a rock, not a big deal. But for anybody reading this text who has an ounce of biblical background, you know the word stone is a title for the Messiah. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. I have set a precious stone in Zion, and he who believes in him will not stumble. And in fact, if you actually go back to the book of Genesis chapter 49, one of the first texts that deals with Messiah, one of the first titles of the Messiah in that text is he is the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel. Why? Because he's the stable one. He's the one who cannot be broken. He's the one who cannot be shattered. He's the one that you rely on. He's the foundation for your life. That's this stone. And here is God's message to Israel. I have not forgotten, even though you may be in exile and you have a foreign king, I have not forgotten my promise that I made to you in the book of Genesis. I will send you that stone he will still come. That's why the stone is the chosen imagery of this dream. And not only did God not forget the position, he didn't forget the person. Notice the next phrase, a stone was cut without what? Hands. Okay, if it's no hands, no human hands, what does that mean? This stone is not man, but who? God. God said, I didn't forget the position. I didn't forget who this was going to be. I promise to send you none other than my own son, the divine one. And you know why this is so beautiful and so compelling? Listen to the wording of Genesis 1 with me. God made man what? In his image. Let me say that again. God made man what? In his image. Yes, we can be called the image of God. I totally recognize that theologically. But the language in Genesis 1 is that we are made not as his image, but what? In his image. In other words, there's the image of God and we are made what? In that image. And what is God saying here? That statue, that image is of no comparison of the one who is the image of God. And the reason that that statue must go down is that God made man what? In his image. And man assumed that he was all that and that he was all that the image of God was. And God says, no, you're not. Statue meet the stone one who is made in the image of God meet the image of God, and that one will reign forever, not you, because there is only one who is the image of God, and no human king and no human being can ever claim that right. There is a stone made without hands who is God himself, the image of God, and who will triumph over anyone who is merely made in the image of God. That is what is going on here. So God didn't forget the promise of his position of his son. He didn't forget the person of his son. And notice this, that stone cut without hands struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Why does it strike on the feet? Well, on the one hand, it strikes on the feet because that's the last kingdom in the progression. And so this is a reminder, and we'll talk more about this next week, that this isn't just some ubiquitous or ambiguous kind of progression of history. This is a very strictly delineated timeline. This is not just, well, this could be true in the time of Rome, and it could be true in the time of Greece, and it could be... No, this is specifically at the very end of the timeline. This is why we are, in part, premillennial, and because the Bible has precision in the chronology and the sequencing, because the stone didn't just strike anywhere. It struck on the feet at the last part at the same time having said that the stone strikes at the foundation of the statue the stone strikes at the grounding of the statue to take it out and notice it crushed them it just demolished this area pulverized it to dust that's the idea and in doing so notice this is so important it wasn't just that the iron and clay feet were destroyed. It's that the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. By attacking that one part of the statue, the whole statue fails. Why? Because the imitation of the image of God has to go for the image of God himself. That's what's going on here. And, it, and notice this, and this is beautiful. It becomes like chaff. It just blows away. And we know what chaff is. It's the byproduct of the harvest. And it's like fine particulates of dust. And it just is easily dispersed and easily cast away. We understand that. But there's there's a scripture here, Psalm 1. Do you remember what it says about the wicked? They will be like chaff, blown away by the wind. And here's what God says to Israel: Israel, I haven't forgotten my son, I haven't forgotten the Messiah. I haven't forgotten those promises. And here's another promise I didn't forget. That even though it looks like evil's winning right now, and even though it looks like you're cast far away from home, and even though it looks like wicked tyrants are in control, and they aren't punished, and they aren't judged, there will be a day, and this promise is still true, I will judge the wicked. They will be like chaff. Psalm 1 is still true even though you cannot see it, it is still true. That is God's message. He will send his son. He will send the stone. He will, he will crush the s- statue. And he will judge the wicked like chaff as he promised so that they are carried away, as it says in verse 35. Not a trace of them was found. All their power will be demolished. And I love this last part. But the stone that struck the image became a what? A great mountain. Mountain. Why, Why a Mountain. Why a mountain? There is one mountain we remember in Scripture, Mount Zion. This is Mount Zion. Jerusalem. It says in Isaiah 2 that the nations will come around Jerusalem. In Isaiah 11, it says this, They will do no harm on my holy mountain. Isaiah 60 says the same thing. Isaiah 66 says the same thing. Ezekiel 40 and 43 articulates the same thing. Jerusalem will become, and Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel all attests to all this, that there will be a great mountain, a mountain that rises high above everything else. And this mountain will be Christ's capital. And notice, it's not just that there's going to be a mountain, there's going to be a city of Jerusalem. God says, I didn't just forget my son. I didn't forget my promises. I didn't forget the Messiah. I didn't forget that I'm going to judge the wicked. And God says this to his people. You may be away from home, and it may seem like Jerusalem will never rise again. Let me tell you this. I haven't forgotten that I will make Mount Zion a great mountain. And in fact, notice the language. This is so important. It became not just a mountain, but a what? A great mountain. You say, why does that matter? What was the original way that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel described the statue in verse 31? There was a single great statue, a single great image. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you, that great image is gone. All that's left is what is truly great, the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion there will be one greatness in the end and it will be the greatness of christ's kingdom sometimes people wonder why do we believe that christ will reign in jerusalem it is a public demonstration a public and global physical declaration that Jesus is the final and only ruler. There are capitals all over the world at this time, in all regions of the world, but there will be one day where there is one capital. Why? Because there is one king. Why? Because he has all authority and it is eternally his. And that's why there will be one great mountain. And God told his people, I didn't forget that promise. Christ will have that kingdom in the end and it will be unquestionably on that day. Every eye will be able to see that mountain, and everyone will know there is one King of kings and one Lord of lords, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice then the last phrase. And what did that great mountain ultimately do? It filled the whole what? Earth. Have you remembered Isaiah 6? God says what? His glory what? Fills the earth. Ezekiel 43 says this. Numbers 14 says this. Habakkuk puts it this way. I love it. He says this, that the... The glory of God will fill the earth like water over the seas. Think about it. Where is the ocean? Not wet. That's a brain puzzle. On purpose. And one day, God's glory will be like that throughout the whole earth. In fact, in Genesis 1, going back there, since we started there with the image of God in man, what does God tell man? Be fruitful and multiply, and what's the final phrase? And fill the earth. One day, God will have his way, and his glory will fill this earth, and everything will be in conformity to that, and everything will be demonstrating that, and everything will be declaring that, and there will be nothing else besides the glory of God. Light and water and earth and time will all be configured to magnify God and God alone. That's what it means that his glory will fill the earth. And what does Nebuchadnezzar realize, and what does he dream about, and what does Daniel relay that final truth, God will win in the end exactly his way. And here is then the amazing thing of what God has done. He's brilliant because he didn't just give Nebuchadnezzar a dream. He gave him a dream that was using imagery from the scripture. He wasn't just random in the way that he presented it He did it so that he would communicate biblical truth even in the pictures he was using. And the glory is this, that ironically, the king who just so defiantly opposed God, who said, I will be the one who conquers Jerusalem, I will stop your plan, he becomes the messenger of the plan of God, that God's plan continues. And here is, and this is so amazing and humbling to think about, the goodness of God right here that as his people were scattered across the lands, and they were so discouraged and perhaps even broken because they thought God had lost, here's what God says. I gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream that I did. He doesn't understand it yet. It's like a parable. For an unbeliever, they can't understand it. But for the believer, they can. And here's the message God said to his people. You may be far away from home. You may be away from Jerusalem. You may see that evil looks like it's winning. But God says, let me tell you this. Every promise of my word is still true and I'm still pushing it forward, and it has not. None of these things have derailed my plan. None of these things have caused my truths and my promises to be deferred. None of them have caused suspended animation of what I have guaranteed to my people. It is still yes and amen, and God said, and I will show that to you by giving a stubborn, rebellious king a dream that has a message to those who have eyes and ears to understand that I still reign, the message still goes, forward. That is why the imagery of the vision and the dream matter and why Daniel gave it separately, because it is the rallying cry that in the midst of it all, God's plan still prevails. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the brilliance of what you have done. Thank you that in your mercy, in every way possible, you relayed messages to your people scattered and discouraged and seemingly defeated, that you have not been defeated, that your promises are still yes and amen, that your plan is still moving forward. It has not been stopped. And so, oh God, in the midst of our own circumstances, as we are exiles and sojourners and wanderers, may it be that we never forget, as we approach the circumstances of our lives and the circumstances and situations around us, that your promises are still true, and that is how we look at our lives. And that is how we pray. And that is how we think of meditate upon these things, that your plan and your promises and your truths and what is stated in scripture and the plan outlined therein is still moving forward. It has not stopped ever and will never stop until all is fulfilled in the stone made not with human hands, who becomes the great mountain that fills the earth. And it is in his glory and for his glory that we pray. Amen.